Welcome to the True Sight Podcast by Oracle's Elixir, your source for in-depth analytical coverage of professional League of Legends and the rest of the esports world. I'm Tim Magic Sevenhusen. Today we're talking to the head coach of 100 Thieves Academy and probably the best analytical writer in the LOL esports scene, Kelsey Moser. Welcome to the show, Kelsey. Uh, hello, hello. Uh, I haven't written, I think, in a year, so it's great that people have not risen up to reclaim that title for me. So Never. It's very exciting. Greatest of all time. Very coachy position that. I have, I guess. So it's kind of like faker. If you're retired for a year, people would still be talking about him. So yeah, exactly. You are. You're the faker. That's <laughs> that's where we landed. Okay, show over. We're done. Uh, nice. So yeah, excited to have you here. Uh, you know, we've we've kind of talked back and forth about different times, you know, or different things over over the years, but uh, haven't you know followed uh, you know being in touch too much about some of the things happening, you know, at Worlds and so on. I think it'd be really great to get your opinions, and I'm sure people are interested to hear about that, and also. Uh, looking forward to talking about, you know, the North American academy scene, uh, amateur scene, talent development, you know, the, that whole topic that is always so, uh, so much on everyone's minds this time of year, whenever the LCS, you know, fails to completely break out at Worlds, we talk about what's wrong and how are we going to fix it and amateur talent and academy development and all those kinds of things. So we'll get your take on those things as well. But I think a great place to start because we're only a few days out uh, we're recording this on Thursday, so two days before the World Finals between Damwon and Suning. Uh, really excited to to watch those finals. I'd love to get your take on, on some of that, and maybe um, just to start out with, you know, what are your expectations for this series, uh, and and what are you what are you thinking about kind of the the overall quality we can expect to see? So I think uh, it's really interesting because Suning is a team that is very unique in the history of LPL in the sense that they actually developed. Uh, from the course of LPL playoffs to their current position, the semifinals, they're even pulling out some new stuff there. Uh, I think that the way that Ben was controlling the wave was not what I had seen from any of his pro views until that point, right, basically. So, uh, and then the way that, the, so that improved the ability to play 2v2's topside, which was always the way that TES won before, right? Uh, is that they were able to punish Ben's wave management, especially on weak side, considerably more. And then, so it, it ended up not really being an arms race, right? Which is what I had predicted it to be. So that that's Suning with all their kind of different angles that they've picked up have been, I guess, one thing that I can say is that there's one way to develop, which is to actually learn and improve, right? And to, to get better at fundamentals of the game over the course of a period of time, which is what Suning had done, which is the, the topic that I just mentioned. And then the other way is to kind of like band-aid, find a strategy that compensates for some of your weaknesses just because you have to win next week, right? Which is way more <laughs> kind of what you saw t teams like Team Liquid do with level one strategies where it's like, okay, our laning isn't really stacking up. So we need to find something that will get us wins in the short run. So we're just going to really hammer out this level one strategy aspect. And then uh, Suning have also had versions of that as well, I guess, is the reason why I introduced it, which is like their use of triple blue orbs, right? Which I've been very critical of like some of their flank vision and their ability to cover uh, sides and stuff like that when it comes to mid game. And that's where I saw them having <laughs> the most interesting development versus JD, because this like domestically teams really punish them uh, with good engage, uh, good basically collapse, very, I mean, one thing that you watch LPL for is how they set up wards, basically not to get vision, but to create angles where they can flank from side or collapse because they play a lot of melee heavy comps. In order for you to do that, you have to be kind of on top of your reset so that you can get deep vision. And uh, TP and collapse force the fights. That's why everyone constantly criticizes uh, LPL objective setups, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that they <laughs> basically to say that they, they are not getting the vision where you would typically see it, which is on the objective itself. But generally it's behind the objective or in somewhere else in the jungle so that they can find collapse blanks, face check with their champions, and then force the objective on spawn, which that's not how you play poke comps, but that's how you will set up for the melee heavy flank comps that we typically see. So Suning's answer to that was to just go three blue orbs and then constantly be checking their flanks, right? rather than yeah. uh, be more diligent about sweeping vision behind them, making sure all of the bases are covered. So those types of things I think are really interesting to see from Suning, which is why I can't completely count them out 
of the grand final, but I do think it's a it's a trickier trickier call because I would say that them one where they are successful is actually the opposite of where you would expect them to be successful, which is uh, definitely the early game. And I'm expecting the way that they play around jungle. It's just like Sooning and the, the early game of Sooning and Dam one in many ways is very similar, just in terms of the philosophy, in terms of playing for the advantage of the jungler and understanding the meta in that, that regard. But Dam one I think, to an extent, just do it better. They also play through the top jungle setup a bit better. I think uh, maybe the one place where we'd have a question mark is if uh, Dam one let's say that uh, Sooning just draft like the perfect team fight comp, and so them one feel compelled to draft like a one through one comp. They have not ex executed that well. Um, so that's that's kind of where I can see them having an angle. But I think that them one will just strangle Sooning out early the way that they have most of the teams. In the yeah, and, and I think, you know, one through one comps are also, it's not that they're impossible to play right now, but they're not really the favored approach, both for the team and for mm -hmm. the meta, right? So I, I think really indexing high into that, that 5v5 is probably a good approach. I think... The, even, yeah, I mean, even just a one four, they've struggled to execute. I think um, basically, if you can break down the the Fiora game that they played, the G two one, they took first tier tower, and then they didn't know how to play after that. Right? He was basically just pushing for the wave when he could have look, either looked for collapsement or uh, set up an angle where they were moving off of mid prior, and then they dove top lane. Right? Like any of those types of things, I think are uh, were 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 feasible for them. Like they should have given up Drakes. And played for a topside vision and then just squeezed out wonder on that side but they didn't do any of that and that's why they ultimately lost the game so just like even a one four comp any type of sideline pressure they can't really execute well so sure. uh if they are forced into a corner where shooting draft like the, a really insane 5v5 comp and they feel like they can't match them there then uh that's where they would and they decide that that's where they need to go mm -hmm. i think that that's a, a situation that they will lose mm -hmm. it is interesting though because even in those you know those five v five scenarios. If Sunning does put themselves in that position, you know I I, I think Dem One's team fighting is quite good. I think they can play those, you know, plenty well enough to win those situations if the drafts are you know relatively evenly matched there and they're not coming in at a big disadvantage, right? Like I don't think Dem One have think... really clear big weaknesses. So I think that uh, TS is still the best team fighting team in the tournament, and uh, Dem One's team fighting advantages like they will miss execute certain situations, but they just have so much gold. That it doesn't matter, right? Usually they just have a gigantic advantage that they don't have to play insanely well. I would say like the one game where Shomika got a lot of praise for that series. I would say the one game where he played like insanely well outside of just the lane and caps like making mistakes was the Cinder game. Like his team fights and his own control in that game were, was really insane. Uh, but I would say that in general, like their team fighting fundamentals themselves aren't like so crazy, right? It's just they usually come to that that section of the game with a big lead yeah and in saying that they're not so crazy is also not saying like when we're at this level of the tournament we're we're nitpicking right like we're looking for they're not an s plus here right they're only an a plus or they're only an a minus or something and they're like yeah but they're all really good still. <laughs> so yeah but i think sooning have shown like really good uh, elements of team fighting especially in the tournament right they've learned uh kind of front to back which was something that i Never thought that they would be able to pull off. Yeah. And Fong has been playing really, really well. And I think that that kind of just accentuates that. So I actually kind of right now favor Sooning in like an even fight if both teams have like uh, front-to-back comps. Uh, I actually think Sooning might execute it a little bit better. Interesting. Uh, I think I think the jungle matchup, and you, you referred to it a little bit already, but the jungle matchup is one that I think will be really fascinating, partly because there's been so much attention on SFM at this tournament. Uh, and, you know, early on in the tournament, and for a large portion of it, his ability to outpath, his ability to be so much more efficient on the map, and use his lanes, and just create these massive farm leads. And then we saw, you know, in semifinals, I'd say there's a lot more about the ganking play, a lot more about the playing for his laners, and, and that was part of what, mm -hmm. you know, he shifted so he can play both styles kind of thing. So there's so much praise that you can heap on him, but then you look across at Canyon, and all of the stats that make SFM look amazing, if you want to, you know, reduce it down to the numbers, you know, his CS per minute, his golden experience leads, uh, and all of that, and Canyon tops them all, and sometimes by pretty wide margins. Uh, what do you expect for, like, a stylistic play? Like, which which style do you think is more likely for SFM to bring into into this head-to-head? -head? Um, so that's, that's an interesting question, because before this tournament, I would have ranked the junglers who played most to least correct. As uh, and by correct, I mean like according to the meta, as like Kanavi, 
then Peanut, then S of M, then Carsa. But the way that uh, S of M has been playing this tournament, I would actually say that he's played like most correctly. Like Suning has played more correctly, kind of through lanes, getting jungle advantage, uh, even going so far as to have like Bin just like force constantly when he could get a free crash off, so that he's pulling like enemy Velibear topside when, yeah. and then uh, S of M just goes and takes his buckets, right? Like stuff like that. I think is really kind of extreme from them. Uh, whereas, like, that was the kind of stuff that I was expecting to see from Kanavi when JDG were basically the team that were playing, like, most for jungle uh, for jungle advantage of any team in LPL. I was expecting to see, like, some of these extremes and some of these heavy invades and constant punishes, but I mostly just saw him, like, full clear his bot side or full clear from top to bot and then get an advantage that way because the other junglers were just constantly ganking, right? Yeah. So... <laughs> I guess uh, I think that, but to an extent, uh, even with all of that, I would say that S of M has kind of had an easy way through the tournament compared to Canyon because the junglers are not actually playing for advantage ex with the exception of Kanavi, right? The junglers that he's facing. Like thinking about Group A, uh, Broxa, Yankos, yeah. and then... Uh, Machi, basically none of those those junglers <laughs> played for jungle advantage. They all played ganking style for their lands, right? So he could easily get those advantages. He was basically yeah. uncontested because the other junglers were making so many mistakes. Um, and the same thing can be said for TS, right? Like the <laughs> really egregious play that I, I went back and forth with uh, Peter Dunn on Twitter on, which basically just like looked like Karsa saying, okay, Shen's going to clear slower. I'm going to level two invade his red buff, and then we'll level two gank top, right? Like these kinds of wild plays that just put him really behind because they're kind of uh, gimme plays, right? Sure. And I think that the way that LPL junglers have gotten away with this is that uh, <laughs> there's so much focus in LPL on playing like the IG style, which is every lane is volatile. Like all three lanes are volatile and constantly pushing. And then we just play for... A heavier trade on one side and then uh other laners are not going to play for that it's more typical for laners to hear okay, from their jungler okay this is my plan and then for laners to set up their wave according to that so that the ganks don't work and then you're just behind in jungle right, right. so uh given the fact that he's had an easy time in that sense uh i would say that it's easier for canyon like we, we haven't, Canyon has had a, a more difficult matchups in that regard and has been able to pull out ahead. So I think that we'll definitely see Canyon still pulling out ahead here. I just think most of his pathing is really, really smart. Uh, sometimes SFM gives up tempo, greeting for camps, sure. but then that'll be a situation where he's like staying on the map a little bit longer and then Canyon is in his face on a full back, yeah. right? With a completed jungle item and killing him, right? Like those are the types of scenarios I expect to see. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <clears throat> that's that's I think that's the role where I expect you know, insofar as you can reduce it down to a head-to-head -head kind of a thing. And I, I've never been a big fan, mm -hmm. or at least not for a few years. And once I learned better about reducing team matchups to head-to-heads in roles, because it really doesn't work that way. But the jungle head-to-head -head is one that I think you know is a, a big reason that Damwon come in with an advantage to me. Uh, for you know, and you've laid that out in in, in some great reasons. Um, to, to think about kind of the way this overall is going to look, you know, I think we're, we're both agreed Damlon come into this as pretty strong favorites. To what level do you think they're a favorites? Is this a 3-0, a 3-1 prediction? What do you see it playing out as? I think it can be more volatile. I try to avoid uh, ever predicting any series involving an LPL team to be like 3-0, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm going to say 3-1 for now for Damlon. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty reasonable. I think similar to coming into Damwon against G2, the reason I said 3-1 there, you know, I thought Damwon is is miles ahead in overall team quality, but G2 do these things, these creative things, and Damwon only have to make a one little slip up for G2's kind of creativity to kick in and they can they can pull off a game, which is pretty much exactly what we saw. Damwon go with a Fiora comp. Okay, you can't quite you can't beat G2 with a Fiora comp unless you're going to you be really really good at executing a Fiora comp, you know, the the four one split and all those kinds of things. And I think it's pretty reasonable to approach this series the same way. Suning can do enough things well that they can they can find this. I'm personally leaning a little more 3-0, uh, but I think a, a lot of it, to me, will hinge on do Damwon try 
not literally another Fiora comp, but something else like that. Like, hey, let's try to win another way instead of just trying to win the same way three times. Uh, but I think, you know, I think that there is a pretty pretty natural um, margin margin between these two teams that, that Suning, you know, whether it's these these 5v5 comps that you're talking about them drafting, you know, they, they have some paths to win games, but I don't think they have enough of them, and I don't think Damwon's vulnerabilities are big enough for them to, to take two games or to take three games off of them. Do you see... I, like, I will say... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, you're gonna I was going to say, you know, aside from this kind of heavy 5v5 team comp priority, what's what's another way... You know, are are there two or three different ways that you can see Suning stealing games or, or yeah. taking taking games? Um, I think so. This is why I had the G two demo series being like pretty close, and I think there was probably just a mental collapse in the fourth game, and that led to the overall quality of series. People remembering it being much more decisive because up till that point, I think the series was like sort of close until game three. I think game three felt like a complete and utter collapse of I don't know what what was going on. But <laughs> uh, the part of the reason why is because I would say that the kind of almost EU style of trading away from dragons for, uh, I, and now it's kind of the EU style because everyone else just plays 5v5s and dragon stacking. Huh. Uh, but it's of trading for like two lanes and giving up a third, right? Like they play for two lanes as opposed to three or mitigating control on one section of the map. So like, I would say TS plays like down middle and then they spread out their control. Yeah. Whereas uh, teams like G2 play for like two lanes where they will control really, really heavily one side of the map and then just kind of ignore the other. Or they'll place down vision on one side, recall, trade that for complete control on the opposite side, right? So I would say that Suning have done that to an extent. And that's part of why their their execution of it is not complete. Uh, and that's part of why they get flanked on, right? That's part of why I claim I, I kind of flame them a bit for how they control, yeah. is because they will kind of play for one side and then they'll decide to contest dragon anyway, right? <laughs> Which I think the next step you have to take is to just like give the dragon uh, four tempo, completely continue of uh, shadowing bin split push or whatever you're gonna do, sure. and then hard play for that. Mm -hmm. I think that their execution of that is a little bit better than Demlons. Okay. Uh, but again, the reason why I think like I, I sort of agreed with Selfmade's estimation, which was G2 had the best chance of beating Damwon, is because they had the most kind of variation in how they'll play the game. Whereas I think Suning will probably continue to opt into this uh, sort of front to back. Uh, maybe they'll try playing through bots, which a lot of teams have tried doing versus Damwon. I think they have a better chance of making that succeed. Maybe they'll go for the 2v2s. I actually think Ben and Nuguri are really similar players mm -hmm. within the context of the tournament. Uh, so I think that <laughs> that's those are things that they can look at. I, I think that potentially Suning's mid game is a little bit better than Demons. Okay. Um, but I do think that they'll get most likely just get blown out early. So. Yeah, cool. Well, I think World Finals, we're all hoping it's going to be entertaining. We're all hoping it's going to be high quality. And I think we've got a pretty good chance of that. Uh, <clears throat> I think even if it does go 3-0, I think the, the games themselves could be internally, you know, uh, entertaining at least. But uh, we'll, we'll all have a good opening ceremony at, at, also at, at the very minimal. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Some, some people actually in the stadium to watch. Uh, I doubt they'll be all that loud, but maybe they'll, uh, they'll, they'll do something creative with the mics, make it feel more like a, like a real exciting environment. So that's yeah, that's happening this weekend. Looking forward to it. Uh, there will be lots of live tweeting and and other things going on. So uh, looking forward to kind of sharing that experience with everyone. Let's uh, let's change gears a little. Let's talk about something that I think you're very uniquely positioned to speak on, which is the North American kind of talent development pipeline. Uh, the you know the, the ways that we get players into the LCS and, and make sure that we're keeping the league league as competitive as possible. So. You know, coaching with the Hundred Thieves Academy and and being a big part of kind of identifying the players to bring in there, I think you've you've been one of the people that 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 have you know gained some attention from the community about what's happening there. I think with Hundred Thieves having the amateur team, that generated a lot of you know a lot of positive sentiment and a lot of discussion. Uh, and and you know that's something that people really want to know more about. 
so we're we're coming up on post worlds. There's going to be the scouting grounds event. So so the LCS mm-hmm. has been running this for a few years, where they they bring twenty players in, have kind of a, a, a mini kind of boot camp and tournament set up with the coaches uh, from the different LCS orgs working with them. Uh, this year's event is going to be kind of mid November, a little bit after worlds. Based on kind of the the players that have been selected for this, I don't know if the the full 20-player list is public yet, but I assume you've seen it. How are you feeling about the cohort of players coming into this year's event? Uh, I think the quality is definitely really interesting this year. Um, I think, obviously, I was really high on the scouting grounds (laughs) two years ago since I picked up most of my team from there. Yeah. Uh, But I think the... In general, this this season, it's a it's compared to last season. I think we'll see a little bit more movement on some of the the prospects. I think only three of them got picked up last season, so I'm expecting based on the quality of players and the list for there to be more pickups uh, this split, especially. Could I also you, think part of the the reasoning is little, that yeah, sorry, could you explain mm-hmm. a little what what the difference is between this year's player list and last year? Because there were some structural changes that people might not be really yeah familiar. for sure. So this is not really a big thing against the players that showed up last time. It's just that um, they're less likely to get picked up for sure if they've sort of already been through the circuit or if they've already been looked at, right? And then a lot of them are are players who, a bunch of them were players who are even ex-LCS who showed up last time. And part of the reason why that happened is the SG circuit was a method that Riot tried to introduce to get more eyes on the amateur scene, right? Now you can qualify through the scouting grounds tournament circuit for, for scouting grounds rather than just placing high in solo queue, which was the qualification method before, which is why you saw like a lot of kind of fresher faces every year. Yeah. Um, to an extent, you still saw a lot of re- recycle players in terms of, okay, well, uh, this is, <laughs> I'm high on the ladder again, guys. <laughs> yeah. uh, t- take a look, but Part of the reason is is that in competitive, it's a really different game to solo queue for sure. So having that kind of experience makes it easier for you to play amateur, right? And a lot of times you'll see in collegiate or amateur teams, more experienced players looking to, you know, get get a little bit of money or get get an education off of their experience. So there were a lot of experience heavy teams that made the SG circuit final uh, this time around. Uh, I would say 100 Thieves organization is part of the reason why you're not seeing that uh, because our amateur team is one of the top two teams. And then the other reason is some of the rule sets that were implemented by Riot. And obviously there are good things and bad things about these rules, like limiting if you've been to multiple scouting grounds in the past, can't come again, things like that. But I think ultimately the spirit of the event is to kind of try to introduce talent that doesn't have a way of introducing itself to teams normally, right? So if you are a a repeat SG player, then that's not really, or you've been in LCS before, that's not really in tune with the spirit of the event, right? So yes, you can demonstrate new skills and things along those lines, but chances are if you're an interesting player, then or is already keeping keeping tabs on you uh, just to see if there's something that they can pick up or uh, some development along those lines, right? So the idea of this being a way to get a lot of orgs a chance to play with, oh, that really cool guy who's rank one, you know, um, is, is, is kind of more in the spirit of the new rules that they implemented. Uh, I definitely encourage orgs and their coaches to keep tabs on some of these players. I think it's my job as an academy coach to watch a lot of amateur, so I do my best. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, for sure, that's that's still, I think right now, if you're good at your job, then SG is kind of a, a nice bonus, right? But if you're not, then a lot of, and some orgs maybe do just completely rely on SG to completely do all of their scouting, right? So it, it, it really depends on your approach, but I think that this the way in which Riot have changed the rules this year is more in keeping with the spirit of what the event was supposed to be. So, yeah, I was I was going to ask, and you're kind of speaking to this. You know, how much how much of your overall kind of effort level in in amateur scouting and, and identifying players of interest? You know, how much of that comes from scouting grounds? Like, if if you were to maybe this is an awkward thing to do, but say 
hey, you know, I put a certain amount of effort per year into identifying players out of scouting grounds, or uh, sorry, identifying players out of amateur, and scouting grounds represents about 20% of my findings or something like that. Like, is, is there a number that you'd be able to put on that? Uh, I would say it's probably lower than 20. Um, I was a big part of the scouting for the amateur team, right? Yeah. And uh, so that that maybe is unique. I don't really blame other coaches for not doing it as much because a lot of orgs have like separate roles for that, which are not coaches, they're scouts, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and the reasoning is the season is really stressful. It's easy to get burnt out, right? When you're done putting in so many hours a week, do you really want to watch an amateur series? Maybe not. Uh, so right now it's definitely an extra workload for sure to keep up with all that and to keep uh, invested in. So I do think Scouting Grounds is a good and useful service for orgs that maybe don't have the bandwidth to have like a, a really, really big scouting department or who don't have coaches who uh, are always just looking at <laughs> players, yeah. you know. So I think that that's, it's, it's a useful service in that sense. I would say that my percentage of scouting is the sc- percentage of scouting that Scouting Grounds does for me is really, really low. But that's not true of everyone. Uh, I try to talk to a lot of different amateur players uh, or like I have players reach out to me on Twitter and being like, hey, do you have time to chat or some advice? And then I have take that opportunity to get some like one on one coaching with them. Right. So uh, and to already have a pretty good idea of most of the amateur players in the scene. So I think that that's a (laughs) that makes scouting grounds like slightly less necessary for me and another a lot of other orgs have things like their own scouting grounds where they invite their own players right before this even happens uh we did one of those in the past uh, obviously it's a little bit harder now due to covid yeah. but uh, in general yeah i think it's coming to be a lower and lower percentage every year of actual team scouting which i think is really good and important uh so but it's still kind of it's still useful for sure so yeah so to what extent do you think other you know how many other lcs teams are are putting a similar like overall organizational level level of effort into kind of their amateur and academy scouting and, and how many of them do you think um are are really under prioritizing that you know it may not be the coaches doing it but mm-hmm. you know with their overall scouting staff and so yeah. on yeah, I think it, it it definitely depends, and I can't give you a, a, a specific percentage. I think a lot of it is changing yeah. this year, right? I think it's very clear at this point in terms of what I've been saying for ages, which is that if our infrastructure that get, prepares players for LCS is poor, then we're really going to stagnate as a region. Yeah, uh, And I think that that's becoming increasingly clear to everyone. So I think that more and more teams are taking an interest in it. I have heard already a lot of other orgs coming up with amateur rosters or doing some looking into that, at least. So for sure, I think that shouldn't be surprising to anyone. We'll see more. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. So I think that it's more and more. I would say that there's probably no orgs right now that aren't at least thinking about it, right? Yeah, we had uh, we had uh, Nick Fan, the general manager of FlyQuest, on the show mm-hmm. last week, and he was he was speaking somewhat to this, you know, and he had a couple interesting takes that that I think would be kind of worth getting your reaction to. Uh, he sure. he spoke about kind of FlyQuest starting to pay a lot more attention to to amateur and to kind of prepping like who do they want to bring up to academy and those kinds of things. Um, a couple of things he said, uh, he said something along the lines of of you know we really post worlds is when they started putting a lot of focus and effort into that. And they weren't happy with that. They want it to be a full year thing, but he also made the comment that if you can't do Academy well, then it's probably not a great idea to build an amateur team and start trying to do that. I'm curious what your take is on, on, on that. I guess it depends on what you're defining as doing Academy. Well, I do think that uh, there are a bunch of different ways of doing Academy. Well, uh, especially since I think for LCS, it's there's a much more cut and dry take. You're a good org if you produce results. You're a good org if you produce good content, right? Those are kind of like the two ways that you can be a good LCS org, sure. uh, but or a good LCS team. Yeah. In terms of academy, there are a lot of different routes, right? Maybe the strategy of your academy team is we're going to develop one player, right? We're going to fill it with um, coaching staff and veteran players that are just going to teach this player really readily so that we can use him next year in LCS. 
maybe that's a strategy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe your academy strategy is we want two really competitive teams to push the LCS forward, right? Maybe your academy strategy is we're going to win academy. <laughs> I'm not yep. a big fan of that one, but maybe that is. Um, so it, it really depends. And then maybe you are in a position where, okay, you aren't able to attract uh, the really promising talent, right? You're not able to attract the players who look like they're going to eventually be superstar LCS players. Maybe you get more out of them by also having an amateur team, right? Like a third tier and then they can play against each other a lot. And then out of that, you're able to get one of 10 prospects seem really, really cool to you, right? Uh, after a year of grinding then that's something that you can use as a corner piece to attract more kind of amateur or rookie players to your org the next year, right? Um, and then you can continue to develop going forward with that. So I think that there's, there's, it's not necessarily true that if you can't do academy well, you shouldn't do amateur. But I do think probably the spirit of his comment was along the lines of, if you don't have the infrastructure or uh, resources to support your academy squad well, you're probably not going to support an amateur squad well. Right. So I think that that's probably true. Yeah, like it's useless. To, it's almost use if you're picking up ten players with a poor support staff for your academy and amateur level, you're going to be very luck- lucky if you have one of those ten pl- players being, you know, motivated, driven enough to make LCS, and then you're just lucky, right? <laughs> So that's a that's definitely a a fair comment to make along those yeah. lines. And I do think you know that that was definitely the spirit of what Nick was saying. And I think the you know the coaching and the kind of staff infrastructure is also a point that 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 he and I talked about a bit. And you know I, I wanted to ask you about it as well. You know just how big of a factor you think quality coaching is uh, in in making sure that talent gets developed well and can kind of progress from amateur to academy to LCS. Like what? what amount of a player's development is reliant on themselves and kind of their own drive and their own mindset, their own ability to understand how to improve versus how much is, is due to kind of the coaching they receive. So I would say that coaching in general in league of legends is totally hit or miss. Uh, that's pretty much across every single league. Yeah. Uh, F had really interesting conversations with Chinese orgs and people are saying that Chinese orgs are doing better because coaching is leveled up. That's absolutely not true um, <laughs> whatsoever. It's the same argument people tried to make in 2013 that LCK was good because their coaching infrastructure was better. That's also absolutely not true. Um, I think it depends a little bit on the resources your region has in terms of how important coaching is. And our, the resources we have are pretty shit. Um, I will put it out there. We have money, and that's about it. Um, in terms of our solo queue system, we don't have a lot of people really grinding it to improve um, or perform at a high level. So the understanding of matchups and just fundamentals in general that players get from solo queue is really low. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, uh, visualization, being given information, all of those things are really important for a player to develop in the context of North America because our solo queue is poor. Uh, so I would say that just, I mean, you watch the average Lucian versus Syndra VOD from top 10 NA and compare it to the average Syndra versus Lucian VOD, even from, you know, Master Tech Korea, and you're going to see some glaring differences. Uh, so I th- in terms of how they're playing the lane. <laughs> so I think that uh, if that's kind of what you have, then coaching becomes more important just because there's more of a gap that needs to be filled. Uh, so for me, I always try to be a much better coach. Um, I, I really think that that's important just to do my job better. And I think that uh, having a, a good coach with like good game knowledge is really important for development in general because – you might have to explain to a player how to freeze a wave. You might have to explain to a player how to trade. Uh, these things that you would expect them to know from grinding solo queue somewhere else, you might have to explain to them how to do it. So if you can't do that, then you're probably not going to do well as a development coach. And you're probably not going to develop players well. So uh, 
think it does matter a lot. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, I like that that point you make about being a you know being a development coach as opposed to you know maybe being a the a coach of an LCS team of a bunch of veterans. You know that's different, right? Where they they need a different a different set of of instructions, more about here's the style we're going to play and here's the communication structure we want to have. You know, you're not teaching the fundamentals at that point. They're not the fundamentals of individual play. Maybe you are teaching some fundamentals of team play, but you're more about kind of nuances and so on. And and so coaches with different skill sets at different kind of uh, parts of the ecosystem is definitely important. I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what kinds of resources are available to help coaches become, whether you're someone who wants to become a coach or whether you already are a coach and you want to level yourself up, like what kind of resources have you found that are available for that or, or are there any? Uh, so I think that there are some coaches who like stream their insights. It's pretty cool. Uh, have Patreon, stuff like that, and just talk about certain fundamentals like that. Um, basically just talking about the game as much as possible, practicing coaching as much as possible. It sounds really troll, right? Yeah. But um, I do talk to a lot of amateur players and try to help them out because that makes me a better coach. Um, just just constantly having that, that practice and that sort of grind for it. Putting yourself out there, uh, thinking about the game, uh, learning as much about the game as possible. Uh, watching one strict one trick streams, you know, it's not bad at all. <laughs> yeah. Like usually one tricks have played that champion minimum one thousand games, right? So they probably know more about that champion than you do. Yeah. Um, and can teach you something about it, right? So just anything like that is helpful. Um, I think ProView was a really big resource for NA, and I wish that it didn't get kind of discontinued halfway through the season due to COVID, but, you know, stuff happens. Yeah. But ProView was really big because I think that that had the opportunity to level up not just player understanding of laning, but coaching uh, in general. So I think that those types of things are, are really useful that can help coaches. I was talking to a couple people in the scene who are willing to provide services from kind of a, an almost a, a psychologist mindset in terms of not necessarily how to improve game knowledge, but how to be good at making coaching so that the information is applicable in future games. Because I think one of the biggest pitfalls of rookie coaches, regardless of whether their game knowledge is good, is they will coach how to win the game that was just played, <laughs> sure. which doesn't necessarily help. Uh, the players get better. So making sure that you're, when you're done with your coaching session, there's easily applied knowledge that is applicable to future games. That say, like, okay, it, this we drew this conclusion because of this situation. This situation is replicable. Uh, that 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 needs to happen for sure. Yeah, definitely. So I mean, it sounds like like a lot of the ways that coaches develop right now are kind of internal, a lot through like peer conversation through study, through just repetition of practice, trying, you know, like you said, you, you talk to academy players, try to give them advice and see how well it lands and maybe you can adjust your approach in the future, things like that. And and probably not a whole lot of development from like institutionalized or external sources like, hey, go take, there's definitely nothing like, go take this course on how to be a League of Legends coach or nothing that is, you know, like accepted or, or really mm -hmm. out there as here's a standard, right? There's no degree you can earn in that kind of thing. Uh, and I think a lot of people who want to, who like kind of aspire to get into the space are hoping or thinking something like that. Like, can somebody tell me what steps to go follow and then I will be a good coach? Like, you know, like you could in maybe a software engineer or something, go take this set of courses and, you know, build these, this set of projects. And now you all at least have, you know, a baseline set of skills that doesn't really exist in something that is so, you know, young industry. And even within the, the League of Legends esports scene, coaching is, is still relatively young within all of that. So I think the, the, the necessity of being kind of self-motivated, self-driven, and knowing how to improve yourself and where to find those opportunities is such a big deal. And it, you know, not just for coaching, but for a lot of other things too, being analysis and, and whether it's data analysis or other types, you have to be able to identify ways for yourself to improve and go out and go out and get them, right? Go out and make them happen because nobody's going to kind of put the steps in front of you and you have to check the boxes. Um, do you... How much, you know, stepping back a little bit, 
how much progress do you think coaching has made in, in a over the past few years? And, and do you see any kind of inflection point when franchising came in and, and kind of the opportunities came up for academy teams and coaches for those teams to exist? So I will say right now, academy is in a weird space because I don't know many academy coaches other than myself. And I haven't talked to all of them about why they're involved in it, who are who want to coach academy to coach academy. Uh, yeah. Most of them see it as, uh, I'm going to use this to leverage my career to get an LCS position, right? Uh, so I think that that's, that's problematic. Uh, I think that there can be incentives to create more coaching in the academy space to get people who actually have the game knowledge and the coaching experience that is useful for developments to enter the space. Yeah. Uh, I think that that can happen. I'm not saying pay me more because I will probably <laughs> never even tell orgs to pay me more, honestly. Uh, it's a hard thing to do in any job. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that like, if there's some way that can you can incentivize uh, more experienced coaches to work with rookies, I think that benefits the region for sure. Um, I, outside of that, I would say that coaching has development developed because the more you do something, you'll probably get better at it unless you're really just running it down and not even trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so I would say that when LCS started out, right, obviously, and they first implemented the rule that every team needed to hire a coach and they were paid for <laughs> and they were paid for basically having a spot on the team because Riot said so. Yeah. Uh, those guys kind of got a chance to be around teams to learn stuff and to level up, right? Mm -hmm. So there are definitely better, there's definitely a better level of coaching now from before. I don't think franchising necessarily did anything about that. Uh, yeah, and by franchising, I more mean like now we have academy teams and you have to have a coach on your academy team too. So just more sports, yeah, yeah. right? That's that's more what I'm, so not more, the structure more of franchising more, itself. More chances to be experienced. Yeah, yeah, but I understand what you mean, but, but that's why I brought up the initial point of I don't yeah. know many coaches in academy who are actually trying to be good academy coaches. So I would say that that in itself hasn't necessarily helped, just having <laughs> having more time passed, I think probably more than anything. Yeah, that's totally fair. <laughs> so, you know, I think an angle on, on all of this that people are have a lot of different opinions on uh, is, is mm -hmm. just the availability of players to be developed in North America. And I'm curious, you know, in your perspective, how much do you agree yeah. or disagree with the idea that North America just lacks the level of domestic talent, you know, to be developed compared to Korea, China, Europe? And obviously, pure population standpoint and quality, server quality, uh, it's really difficult to argue that we have less population talent resources than China. <laughs> not gonna argue that we're uneven standing in that regard at all but i do think the the idea that so one one argument that i've heard from various people in the space is we should be getting talent from other regions and pulling them over to develop them it's like mm -hmm. well our development infrastructure is really bad and uh you're not going to learn a lot from our solo queue so that seems like a really backwards argument i think uh the the best thing that we can do is is put as much resources as we can now into the, the talent that we do have in developing it, because I do think that a lot of it has gotten dismissed just because we do have a small server and because people haven't had the resources or the knowledge to teach some of the fundamentals that players lack. It's just like, well, this guy's inting his Jax versus Camille matchup. Uh, I guess we can't play that champ, you know, instead of just noticing that he's taking bad trades or he's not managing waves properly, right? Uh, so I think that there's some regard. Yeah, yeah, we have less talent, but I do think we can get way more out of it than we can, and we should be developing the resources to do that before we think about trying to pull players here yeah. and develop them, because historically, that hasn't made the solo queue better. <laughs> that hasn't really made the region better. Uh, it's just a, a thing that has happened, and uh, unfortunately, we've kind of made players worse by bringing them over here historically, so... Yeah, and, and if you want to, if you want to, you know, 
extrapolate on that that approach and apply it to another context look at you know hockey is something that if we're talking traditional sports it's something that i have a little deeper awareness of than some of the other sports i do follow you know other sports in general but you know as a canadian you look at you look at the nhl how many canadian players are in it compare populations between say canada and the u.s even let's not even go globally and look at the international success canada's had about a tenth of the population as as an overall country but you know at least on par and generally better in terms of the number of players who go pro and and that is so much involved in infrastructure you know partly it's kids aspire to play in the nhl at a much higher rate here mm-hmm. than they would in the u.s because there's you know it's the sport and there's a little less competition but which sport you might want to go into but partly it's also like hockey canada the the kind of the the federal institution that that oversees teaching coaches how to coach the whole you know the system of which level of leagues you can play at what you learn at different ages it's it's all about the player development infrastructure and and it's not because canada is you know importing players to teach it's because they know the right way to teach the players and and the right methods to use and how to teach the coaches to teach and all these things so i think that's that's you know a pretty great case study of of what kind of uh where the effort should be directed if north america wants to develop more and better league players invest in the infrastructure invest in teaching how to teach invest in the right coaches and then you know get the most you can out of the players you have you know i think you're you're completely right in exactly what you're saying there uh um, yeah. I, I just i i just think that uh it it's i i've just heard that take a lot right so i just kind of wanted to sort of express my thoughts on that yeah and i think the more we see uh the more we see um success cases of you know mm-hmm of blabber, of Vulcan, of Spica, of Tactical, the more we see that, the more I think it helps people buy in and and understand mm-hmm. not just conceptually, but with concrete evidence, like, oh yeah, this does work. Uh, you know, we, we can go that way. Maybe we need to find ourselves a Spica, right? Uh, things like that. And, and of course, that has to start with teams recognizing that Spica is actually good, but, you know, <laughs> or at what level he's actually good, all of those kinds of things. But um, I also just want to get your take, you know, quickly on a bit of a hot button topic lately about the idea of kind of in-house solo queue on the tournament realm dealing with the ping issue. I know that there sure. are different opinions about that, and I'd love to kind of hear your your take on whether that's that's helpful and beneficial or not. So yeah, again, I think the ping issue is not the only issue with solo queue for sure, uh, but I also understand. <laughs> to an extent why it's not used as much. So I do encourage my players to use it. Uh, but I also think that uh, when they queue up for it, right, you'll see two players queuing up for that and solo queue at the same time and then just going up for whichever one pops first. You know? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so there is, you do have more downtime if you're queuing for the system just because fewer people are doing it. Maybe if everyone did it, it would be better, but it's hard to convince, you know, every player to do it after spending a really hard day of scrims uh, and then want to play against the same people. I think that you can, if you want, call players lazy. Uh, it really depends on the player. But I, I do understand after a long day of scrims, it's really mentally taxing to not want to just grind against the same people. And not having the ability to just stay completely 100% focused. Uh, the one topic on it that I care about, but very few people do, or at least that I haven't seen other people express, is when you're taking all of the pros off of the solo queue ladder, the, it hurts uh, player development, for sure, because yeah. for everybody else, the, quality right? that, yeah, the quality of the certain players being able to play in that sense are, is diminished and obviously uh, an arrow system has the ability to invite players from solo queue but if you're not playing solo queue you don't even know (laughs) which players to invite right so if the entire pro community moved to in-houses permanently uh, I do think that the long-term effects would hurt uh, player development yeah you can't just you know skim the top end, skim the top percentage off of solo queue, put them into in houses, and now what about the rest of the solo queue? And how are they ever going to get up, get yeah. up to that level, right? Mm-hmm. You can't catch up. I keep, I keep up with my players, and try to give them you know off season goals for improvement and stuff like that. Um, and then I, I just frequently get the feedback that solo queue is just not worth playing right now because all the top pros are obviously in China or taking a break immediately after LCS ends. So solo queue quality is already so bad. 
right? Yeah. Uh, so definitely issues with with that that I think people haven't really discussed as much that I care about that obviously are not the reasons players aren't doing it because players don't don't give a f- about development of the amateur scene. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, that's kind of the where I sort of nail my cross, I guess. Yeah, fair enough. So, you know, I'd love to wrap things up with a few questions that people have submitted um, through the Patreon. You know, I post this in advance. If uh, if you want to go to Patreon, I post kind of who the guest is going to be and give, give people an opportunity to submit some questions in advance and select a few of those. So just a couple of those and, and uh, we can, you know, not have to go into a uh, ton of depth if we've already spoken about it a little bit. But uh, so just a po' boy wants to know, in your opinion, what defines a successful academy team? And I think we've spoken about this a little bit, but I think maybe putting it into kind of a neat, tidy bullet list of, you know, different ways you can define the success of an academy team. I think that might be helpful. So I always say that uh, my goal is not to win academy, but to have my players be considered to as a candidates for LCS, right? And however, fortunately or unfortunately, that has happened the past two years, I would say it's happened. (laughs) Uh, I I think that one thing that academy systems universally lack is a reward, a promotion system that is rewards-based rather than uh, punishment-based. And what I mean by that is that usually academy players get promoted because the LCS team screwed up, right? Or messed up or made a sure. mistake, right? Which, what, how how good of a debut do you think uh, an, a debut season an academy player is going to have in that context, right? Yeah. Uh, regardless of how good the academy player is, if the team that he's promoted to is struggling, probably won't look too insane uh, from the beginning. Right. Like, I think Tactical looked pretty decent on a struggling TL in spring, but no one really thought he was that good until summer, right? Right, yeah. I think that that's definitely a fair point to make. <laughs> so from that perspective, you're definitely kind of hurting the careers of promising rookies by promoting them sort of based on the struggles of the LCS team almost exclusively. So I would like to see more teams take reward-based approach. And I think this is why we saw last year Reaper make comments like, I need best of three in LCS to get my rookies more stage time. Yeah. Because I think that, that, that that's an incentive, right, to let orgs promote players more. I think spring can be used with the new format, can be used better as a way of trying to implement more rewards-based LCS time, right? So I, we'll see if, if teams try to do that at all. It's like, okay, the team is not doing insane, but it's not doing poorly, and this guy is just popping off in our academy team. Uh, let's let him have some scrim time, and if it goes well, we'll give him a, a stage game right? in spring when results are not too important. Uh, I think that, that that kind of approach can be taken more. Uh, so I, we'll see, we'll, we'll, we'll keep posted to see if that ever happens. Uh, I know there's the famous Cardinals team, right? <laughs> Managed to, it was 2013 through 2015, right? They had the, the next man up approach and they had the best season records of the entire franchise history, right? And that was because after having so many unexpected injuries, the next season the coach decided, okay, we're going to get the bench players more playtime so that if injuries happen, mm-hmm. uh, we have yeah, just we have prepared. backup players who are well prepared for playing, you know, major games. And then they had an insane 13-3 regular season off of discovering a rookie, basically just from having that approach almost by accident, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's. Definitely something that be, can be taken because LCS teams might have good eyes for talent, but no one has like a perfect eye until uh, there's enough tape to make it happen. Sure. Uh, next question up. Uh, so Space Alpaca one is a no great name, by the way. Do you believe that former LCS players belong in Academy? Take that however you want to take it. 
a tough one, right? So it really depends. Like, for example, I would say Contracts, former LCS player who was in Academy. Uh, I think it was kind of a crime that he didn't have LCS opportunities at the end of his season. Yeah. But there was stuff that he worked on in Academy and became very good at. Uh, he had the first opportunity to be an actual leader and kind of say what his path and have laners plan around that. And I think he became uh, really kind of good at that aspect. Also got good at understanding, like kind of engage ranges, those types of situations. Uh, so definitely, I think it is hard to make a blanket statement that LCS, ex-LCS players shouldn't be in academy. I think that there's space for them for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think that if they're not working on something or if there's, you know, I think it's just, it's just not a good statement to make because I think that when people are saying there shouldn't be XLCS players in Academy, what they're really attacking is poor scouting. So by that, I mean, yes, uh, there's definitely room for XLCS players in Academy. If your Academy strategy is to have the competitive 10 men's roster, you probably have some XLCS players in Academy. But if you're putting an XLCS player in there just because you're too lazy to scout rookies, then that's an entirely different issue. And that player probably wouldn't be an academy if that wasn't your infrastructure, right? So as more teams put more effort into um, scouting for an academy and amateur, I think we'll see fewer uh, LCS players that look like they just shouldn't be there, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a... That's a good overview of it for sure, and I agree. Uh, final question we'll go into. Chase Chase Schweitzer wants to know, how much does your personal vision for building a team align with Papa Smithy's, so the, the general manager overall for, for 100 Thieves? So for example, says Chase, he seems focused on developing a talent pipeline that can compete with Cloud9, and how much does that align with kind of your the way you like to approach things? Uh, I would say probably within the org, I'm definitely the most bullish about player development, uh, which makes sense. Right, I'm in the correct position for that. <laughs> so I would say that no one within the org really kind of aligns perfectly to my vision on that perspective. But I do think we probably agree more than we disagree. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's... Obviously, he's still beholden to LCS obligations, right? Which yeah. are along the lines of if you have a chance to build a roster that wins now, maybe you should. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but which doesn't necessarily align with my philosophy because I think that we aren't going, my success is way, my view of success is way more long-term. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in general, I would say that he's, he and 100 Thieves have been fairly supportive of my kind of vision. And basically they were interested in me initially because I wanted to be an academy coach. Right. Yeah. That's a, a really weird thing to say, but that's kind of what I've been looking for. And, um, we've kind of found ways in which that aligns with what we want, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, <clears throat> and I think, you know, organizationally, for the health of an organization, you always do want people who uh, prioritize slightly different things. Like, you want to be on overall more or less the same page, but mm-hmm. you do want to have a little bit of healthy tension there, right? Where where people are pushing oh, yeah. for what is important to them, right? So I think that's, uh, yeah, that, that's not only fair, but I think it's kind of appropriate for, for building out a good organization that way. Yeah, I think uh, a good organization has coaches on every level advocating for their players, right? Which creates tension. It also creates like certain biases, but it creates, hopefully, if everyone respects each other, it's like healthy discourse and um, good ideas that come to the front that the other person might not have considered. So, Definitely. Well, that's going to wrap it up for now. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Uh, good luck with uh, you know the the impending off season uh, chaos, uh, building out the the academy roster. I'm sure you know whatever input you have on kind of the LCS side and, and creating that entire structure of it. You know whatever you're going to do with with hundred thieves mm-hmm. next in the amateur. Uh, what's the best way for for people to follow your work? Yeah, so uh, Karen Moser, K A R O N M O S E R. My middle name is Aaron. Uh, for those curious, I get that question uh, on Twitter is a good place to usually find wherever I'm, whatever I'm doing. I always have aspirations to release a lot of world's content, but then mm-hmm. scouting stuff gets in the way 
So I've made one video for Worlds of Far <laughs> that you can find on my YouTube channel with the same tagline. So probably the best places to look. And then uh, keep an eye out for my player streaming. I know Tenacity has been streaming a lot. Uh, sometimes can be streams. Prismal was on a pretty good tear for a while. So um, I always will plug those guys. Yeah, and, and maybe you could also give us... Uh help us out a little bit with knowing how to follow Hunter Thieves next, because I know people struggle a little bit with mm -hmm. knowing how to get plugged into the amateur scene, where to find out when the matches of the, the teams that care about are happening, things like that. What's the best way to kind of keep tags on, on keep tabs on Hunter Thieves next? So we're very uh, excited that probably most of our roster is getting picked up <laughs> by Academy teams, um, either ours or otherwise. So we'll have a new roster announced shortly. If, um, that will be probably announced through the typical 100 Thieves channel and all their Twitters will be included. If you want to follow the recent class of 100 Thieves next, uh, then probably check out uh, Leaguepedia has a great page with all their socials. It's a, a, that's always the first place I go if I want to find out about a player. Mm -hmm. uh, if you know their names, usually pretty easy to find on Twitter uh, or Twitch. There's a 100 Thieves team hub that has all of the players streaming, all their stream channels that you can look for. Uh, all of the index players are there as well. So um, good stuff. Yeah, maybe we'll try to grab the link for that and include it in, in the show notes as well so people can can uh, jump onto that. Great. Well, thank you very much, Kelsey. This is this has been great. Uh, really appreciated getting your insight and, and your uh, your unique perspective on a lot of these things from the position you work within. And thank you to everyone for, for listening to the episode and, and supporting the show. Uh, you can support the True Sight podcast at patreon.com slash oraclezelixir. Uh, you can subscribe on Spotify, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts as well, or follow the show at anchor.fm slash truesight. Uh, we'd also welcome you to join the Oracle's Elixir Discord server, and links to all of those things will be in the show notes. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you again next time. <laughs>